This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-host, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And Tablet Employee, Leah Leibowitz. Uh, em- employee in training. Intern, really. We're winding down the year 5782 since the creation of the Earth. And today on the show, we're back from summer vacation with a blockbuster show. Our Gentile of the Week is journalist and author Michael Lewis. You might know him from some of his books like The Big Short or The Blind Side or Moneyball or his great podcast Against the Rules. Our Jew of the Week this week is chief political correspondent for CNN, Dana Bash, who joined us to talk about the CNN special on anti-Semitism that she hosted a couple weeks ago. So we're going very glitzy this week. All of our guests are more famous than we are. They're either best-selling authors or they're on the big screen. They have their name in lights. Like we we come post-Labor Day with the heavy artillery. That is a, that's a high bar to clear. More famous than us. More famous than us. I mean, really, who is? And I have to say, we were all supposed to finally be together in studio today. But Mark, we are not. Um, <laughs> we are not. Do you want to tell the audience what happened to you? Oh, sweet Lord. If only the audience were on our Zoom call today, they would see that my piercing brown eyes are occluded by those dark glasses that they wear in retirement communities to protect the eyes after cataract surgery. Yes, I am wearing the wraparound shades of the recently operated on. Saturday, I was chillaxing with my kids at the for our final pool outing of the long summer. And I said to Sid, I see weird spots in front of my eyes and not just one or two. And I'd had an episode of having some floaters in front of my eyes a couple months ago, but then it had gone away. But they had said, if this comes back, go straight to the ER. So I went straight to the ER. And to make a long story short, less than 24 hours later, I was being operated on for a detached retina. And it's now, what, Tuesday? And I've been steadily drugged ever since. My left eye is swollen to the size of a pickleball, a sport that otherwise I don't mention because of my antipathy toward it, but there's no other way to describe what my left eye looks like behind these these shades. And I can't see a damn thing, but my vision has been saved. So it's been a pretty, uh, <laughs> this has not been a great start to, to the, the new podcasting year, but I'm so excited that you guys, my colleagues have picked up the slack. Uh, we got Gate Crashers successfully launched this morning, the new podcast about Jews and the Ivy League. And um, you just don't want me driving anywhere. All I'm saying is I'm on drugs and you don't want me driving anywhere. And Stevie Wonder would like his shades back when you're done. <laughs> these, these are Roy Orbison's shades, not Stevie Wonder's. I'll thank you to respect the difference. It's really great to get a text like three days before someone's huge show is about to launch. It's like, hey guys, I'm in the ER. Everything's fine, but I need surgery. Um, and I just think we're glad you're okay. We're glad you're okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. And this you is, look amazing. This is such <laughs> a great kind of like behind the music type vibe for us. Like usually like when a big rock album drops, like and three days before that, the lead singer, you know, OD'd on heroin. For us, it's like, right. and three days before the podcast drops, the lead guy had a, a medical emergency. retina detached. That involved some surgery. The lead Jew needed glasses. An anti-inflammatory medication. <laughs> there, let's just say that in the hospital at one point, the word fentanyl was dropped on me. I, I didn't end up uh, going the fentanyl route for various medical reasons that that I that decision was taken out of my hands, but I almost came home with a prescription for um for 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 substances that have made the news in not good ways lately. I do want to say that when one of us has to bail on something, I don't know about you guys, but there are those times when maybe I have to bail on an interview or I want you guys to pick up some slack and I feel a little bit sheepish about my excuse. Like if I had planned ahead a little bit better, I 
I could have made it, right? Like, and and I mean, maybe who among you, us, right? And maybe you guys know that, and maybe you guys are then sort of subtexting each other with me off the thread, saying like, "Who's Oppenheimer kidding?" But when I was there, hearing the doctors say things in the background, like, "We think we can save his vision," I felt so justified in saying, "I'm saying not things like, to nurse, camp. we're losing him." <laughs> Thirty like, cc stat. We're like, right, we're going to need another voiceover, Mark. When George Clooney showed up with Juliana Margulies to save me, I knew that I was off the hook for some of my work this week. Uh, could you guys cheer me up, please? What's going on with you? Stephanie, Liel, is anything going on in your lives? Well, I just like, I want to say how proud I am of all of us, especially you, especially producer Josh Cross, all our production team, for getting Gay Crashers out into the world. Episodes one and two, Columbia and Princeton are up. It's amazing. It's amazing. And like, it's from the team that brings you this show, I just think all of our listeners are going to love it. I want to, like, give you a shout, Mark, because, like, this is this is a big thing. And, like, you're wearing your VIP shades now. Like, I get it. You're, <laughs> I, you know, I watched the Emmys last night. You're, like, a leading man now. You're the person who watched the Emmys last night? <laughs> it was on in my house. <laughs> the Neil, I will the say Nielsen that I was committee was like, watching. oh, oh, we know who watched. Okay, Stephanie. I will watched. say That's I was actually person. watching— Ken Burns's new PBS documentary about the Holocaust in one room. And then when someone who won, who I knew, Ben would be like, come on in. The guy from Ted Lasso won. And then I'd come in and watch and then go back to the Holocaust. How big is your apartment? You have two TVs in your apartment? No, no, no. I was on my laptop in the kitchen oh, washing okay. dishes. Okay. It was like pretty oh, glam. Okay. And, and at some point, the, the two narratives started like mixing together. It's like, <laughs> it wait really a minute. Confusing. Jason Sudeikis was in Auschwitz? Like, this is really dark. <laughs> Brett Goldstein. Right. Oh, he definitely. Let him into you know, America. You know where Brett Goldstein would have ended up. Ted Lasso won best mustache in Beer Canal that year, actually. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, if I may, we've done such a good job with this podcast and this new podcast, but we couldn't do it without the listeners. And I do want to say we've been running this fundraiser for a few weeks now. And it's, you know, it's always strange because we run this fundraiser in August. And so we're often on vacation. This isn't the first time this happened. And so we don't get together as a group until a few weeks in to talk about how well it's going and how excited we are. You guys have been leaving some quotes at tabletm.ag slash mystery box. They're just warm our hearts. And I just, I, you know, so for example, one listener writes, I am doing Daf Yomi now, the daily, uh, you know, the, the daily Talmud page with Liel's podcast and trying fasting on the fast days. I now donate to AJWS and Hadassah. Like basically they've taken the whole program. They donate to our sponsors. They're fasting on fast days. They're studying Talmud. Another lovely listener wrote, Mark's book on Squirrel Hill is one of the best books I've read. His chapter on the Federation convinced me to start donating to my local Federation for the first time after 30 years of living here. Holy cow. I wanted to make you donate to Unorthodox, but if I'm getting you donating to other Jewish communal organizations, <laughs> that's, you know, that's great. Here we go. Love tablet. I am motivated to give a donation to Unorthodox instead of membership dues to a shul. Well, I guess that makes up for the person who's not giving to Unorthodox, but is giving to their federation. <laughs> we'll just conclude with love, love, love Unorthodox. I write in, post on the Facebook page and donate. That's the triple threat. Writing us letters, posting on the Facebook page and giving us money. We love you so, so much. I also want to say, like, all those notes came from people who donated. And I want to say I have been crafting my mystery box. And it's amazing. It's like, it's very neon. It's very cool. And I feel like this has been like a really fun thing for us to put together. So we're not actually saying what's in the mystery boxes yet. Right. You get to choose when you donate. Do you want, if you win the raffle, do you get the Mark mystery box, the Liel or the Stephanie? And we, yeah, we've had no discussions on what we're putting in our mystery boxes at all. The Mark, the Stephanie or, or the fun one, you mean? So Stephanie, what's in your mystery box? 
Okay, I'll give you a hint as to what's in mine. Mine are some like Jewish objects, but like very, very, very like bright and colorful. The idea Mm. being that like you can have beautiful Jewish items that sort of like still showcase your personality and also are sure to bring joy into your home. And I'm really excited about it. I want one for myself. Mine is a starter kit on how to be me. It's pure narcissism. Will there be a friendly gift certificate? There may be. Will there be a bow tie? There may be. But I'm going to go deeper. And it's basically going to be a starter kit on on living your best Oppenheimer life. Either that will appeal to you for its own sake, or you'll put it on eBay where it will nab you. I mean, incredibly valuable. Well into the five figures. And mine is the starter kit on how to be a Jew. (laughs) <laughs> including all, all the texts that you needed uh, and some you didn't even know you needed and some objects that will uplift you on your magical mystery tour to Hashem. And okay, some self-defense items. <laughs> right. May, maybe some spirits. And, and a, a personal Krav Maga lesson from you, right? Anywhere in the world. That is a surprise I am not reviewing. Listen, listeners, um, <laughs> we, really, we really would like to, to cross the finish line before the new year. And I just know that people could say, I love this podcast and I'm in. I'm in for $1.80 a week and whatever that adds up to, or I'm in for 180 this year, or I'm in for $5 because, and, and those I would remind everyone are the most moving notes. The people who say, look, I really don't have anything. And yet I want you to have something as a token of my appreciation. And one of those people is going to write in right now and is going to give some money. Um, but look, we do need this to keep going and we're, we're trying to bounce back post COVID. And I just want to say, we have so much gratitude for you going to tabletm.ag slash mystery box. NPR gives you a freaking tote bag. We give you a share in the world to come. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. This story comes out of the Upper West Side, and I think one of you two Upper West Siders has to share it. What is the the most dastardly piece of NOTJ this week? This comes to us from the New York Jewish Week. Upper West Side congregation takes beloved salmon off the menu, citing environmental concerns. B'nai Jeshurun sent out this note to their congregants saying, like, we're bringing Kiddush back after COVID. This is like the return of the community Kiddush. And they were saying, like, we're making some changes. Um, There's going to be smaller tables farther away. And also, we are not going to be serving locks. Oh. So here's what they said. Locks will be eliminated from the menu so we can do our part to reduce the environmental impact of pollution and overfishing. We know that for some, this is a heretical move. We are here to support you as you process this change. People got really, really mad. And now there's an asterisk on here, and it says, please see correction below. And if you scroll to the bottom... This says the original version of this post incorrectly stated that the consumption of lox contributes to the overfishing of salmon. Please read our full statement. Now there is a full statement, another full statement all about this. And the second statement, the backtracking, the the, the backpedaling says, first, we inaccurately stated that consuming lox contributes to the overfishing of salmon. Most lox, in fact, is made from farmed Atlantic salmon. Second, some felt that we implied that eating lox is immoral or that BJ is boycotting lox or lox providers. This could not be farther from the truth. Moreover, should anyone sponsoring Kiddush wish to include locks in the menu, they are welcome to do so. Which left me with two thoughts. First of all, big locks came for them, right? They got a call from, um, you know, Schmulstein. Well, they're literally around the corner from Barney Greengrass. They're a herring's throw away. Gary Greengrass himself called, 
You come to me on Shabbos. <laughs> you don't call me Locks father. Right. The Locks father got to them and they basically, they were afraid that they would not be swimming with the fishes, as it were. And so they had to backpedal. But the second thing is, as a vegetarian, I, I kind of salute this move, even if they got all their facts wrong. But then the third thing is, well, let's parse this sentence. Moreover, should anyone sponsoring a kiddish wish to include locks on the menu, they are welcome to do so. Ultimately, we chose to eliminate locks from non-sponsored community kiddish because of its increasing cost, as well as our desire to include more plant-based offerings at community meals. Okay, sub point A and B on that. <laughs> Nothing is worse for the vegetarian movement than referring to the stuff we eat as plant-based offerings. Okay, I never want to think of myself yeah, I do not as want eating- that plants. If what they mean is we're eating fruits and vegetables and grains, that's great. But those of you who are trying to move into the vegetarian space with me, don't ever say that I'm eating plant-based offerings. Okay. <laughs> unless unless it's like, you know, Doritos, which is technically- <laughs> There's burnt offerings and now there's plant-based <laughs> offerings. Exactly. Um, and synagogues do them all over time. I want neither. Second of all, point uh, number B, as my high school philosophy teacher, Mr. Failey used to say, number B, you're noticing there are two kinds of kiddishes, right, of, of lunches after the morning service on Saturday. One is community-sponsored, which means no member stepped up to foot the bill for that day. And the other is a sponsored kiddish, right? My shul of like 300 families, almost every kiddish is sponsored. I mean, like of the 52 kiddishes a year, you know, 48, 49 are sponsored by so- somebody always steps up with 150 or $200 to put out, whether it's a big spread or whether it's just some crackers or what, like- that B'nai Jeshrit, this very wealthy, very large synagogue on the Upper West Side, has a lot of community-sponsored kiddushes, meaning nobody stepped up to foot the bill for lunch. That's that's a problem in institutional Judaism. I think that it's a little different. I mean, you you sponsor it if it's like your child's bar mitzvah or it's your wedding weekend. Like, I think that, I think it's... Or you actually care about shul and go every Shabbos and it's your community. No, no, I don't I don't know that the structure is in place. I don't know. I also think that like this is a very big synagogue and $150 probably does not bring much to the table. Yeah, $150 in New York, Mark, is like three bottles of seltzer and like some juice. Stephanie, to your point, it's not just when you have a bar or bat mitzvah. In a well-functioning community, if a Saturday's coming up a couple weeks from now and nobody has said, I'd like to treat everyone to lunch in honor of something, then somebody finds something. They say, um, it's the 32nd anniversary of my cousin passing the bar and I'm sponsoring it in his honor. Like you make stuff up because you want to treat people to lunch. And I just think that, you know, B'nai Jeshrin, Step up. And then you and then you have locks every week if you want it. You have locks for days. You have locks for days. BJ New Haven's Becky just ate your locks. <laughs> I mean, I just think it's sad because you're like, this synagogue was so happy to bring back. They were like, we're back. Labor Day's over. In-person lunches are together. And like, they basically had this exciting announcement and then just like really just mucked it up. I, I want to conclude this discussion by eliminating all of the nuance that you two brought to the table and say that I, I truly don't care if all the oceans dried up, if every fish on planet Earth ceased to exist, you would pry the locks out of my cold, dead mouth. Yep. Amen. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> well, now that we've handled the really heavy stuff, let's go light and frothy. The New York Times is 80,000 word, five volume, in search of lost time, remembrance of things past, crime and punishment length report on the state of Hasidic schooling in Brooklyn and the city funds they receive. Liel, I'm inclined to let you have at this first because you actually did the hard work of writing an article for Tablet 
Before the Times article even came out, you predicted correct. what it would be about. Yes, and I got it completely, completely right. Mostly correctly. You said they would talk to a few dozen people. They claimed they talked to something like 250. But mostly you, you predicted what they would say. I want to give you a chance. I'm going to tee you up here by explaining for everyone what this article was. It ran on Sunday, Sunday, page one, which still matters in certain worlds. It still matters to the Bnei Jeshurun congregants. Right. <laughs> which is, it was uh, an investigation into the state of Hasidic schooling. Basically, K-12 schooling, largely in Brooklyn, seemed to be looking mostly at Satmar schools, but also Vizhnitz and Bobover and some other Hasidic schools. K-12, not college, not preschool, but sort of primary and secondary education arguing basically two things. Number one, that overwhelmingly these schools do a very, very bad job of teaching secular subjects that by law they are supposed to do some teaching of, like reading and writing in English and math, that they give almost no time to it, don't take it seriously, and their kids, when tested, as they sometimes have to be because they get government money, perform worse than any other school districts practically in the world. They're in the first percentile. And second, that this is a particular problem or Shonda because of hundreds of millions, indeed, over a billion dollars in aggregate government aid, state, local, and federal, that these schools get to run various supposedly non-religious programs like aftercare, school lunches, et cetera, and so forth. And so it's enormous amounts of money going to schools that are doing a very, very bad job and that they don't get called out on this because they have a lot of political clout and sway a lot of voters. And so the, the city government will never really carry through an investigation of this and, and lower the boom. Liel, did I summarize it fairly? I think you summarized it very fairly. There are so many delightful approaches. Let, let me be Talmudic here, or Talmudic, as I should probably say, and approaches from several directions before getting to, to what I think is the actual crux of it. Let's say for one second that I'm completely fine with the fact that the Times, you know, chose to report not on, say, repeated and increasing violent attacks against this one minority community that result in absolutely no time served or legal law enforcement matters. Let's assume that that's okay. Let's assume also that for some reason it's fine that the Times priority isn't the public school system that received $14 billion in federal aid in the last two years and performed unbelievably poorly, worse than pretty much every other city in the country and for some reason wish to focus on private schools to which parents send their children by choice. Let's assume all these things were fine. Let's also assume that there is some logic to what the Times is proposing, which is what the Board of Regents of the state of New York is going to vote on today, which is not any kind of measurable output, meaning these people don't want to say, we need these kids to come up to some kind of par that we define. Uh, but rather, they just want equivalency. They want to say, you know, all those lesson plans that aren't working in public schools, we want to apply the exact same failing lesson plans in yeshivas. Let's put all those aside and, and I could go seven or eight or nine steps deeper. Let's assume for a second that every single thing that the unbelievably biased New York Times article says, and again, there is not in the 900,038 and six words of this article, there's not a single interview with a mother or a father saying, yes, I choose to send my kids to this school and here's why. And, you know, the community was approached. It's not like they weren't. It's just tremendously in bad faith. Let's assume that the Times is completely correct. My question is, so fucking what? Because the question you should really be asking is, what is really truly the purpose of education? Is it to gain or instill a certain kind of skill set that we deem important for a whole set of shifting reasons? Or is it to produce happy, healthy, 
productive members of a community, which in the Hasidic community, I would say is unbelievably the case. Here's a community with A, practically no crime, B, very high rates of childbirth, very high rates of mutual support. Here are people who, for the most part, choose to stay in their own communities and, and live productive lives that are sensible to them. All of a sudden, this attack on a minority is so revolting to me. It is definitely anti-Semitic. But furthermore, it's an attack on the very issue of religious freedom, of these people's right to choose how to raise their children in a private school. And this canard of, oh, they get money. Right. The state made the money available. If the state wishes to take it away, that's fine. But to fault Hasidim, for taking this money. And even more preposterously, the Times portrays in their piece the voting patterns of the Hasidim like it's some nefarious thing. Like all of a sudden, voting in America in large numbers is a nefarious thing. It's just disgusting. I have to say that I read this article and I was like very, very, very upset by it. I found its takeaways disturbing. And I found the allegations of abuse really troubling. And I think that saying, oh, the Times is anti-Semitic, this is, why aren't they looking at this other things? Like, I think that detracts from some of the things that are reported in this piece that are actually really important. This is a line from the piece. During religious studies, teachers in many of the boys' schools have regularly smacked, slapped, and kicked their students, records and interviews show, creating an environment of fear that makes learning difficult. At some schools, boys have called 911 to report being beaten. That's a really messed up thing. And I'm glad that that is coming to light in this report. I mean, I think that sort of glossing over some of the specifics in here is really problematic as well. And so I think that I want to take the conversation down to like the nuts and bolts of, of what's being reported as opposed to saying like, oh, it was a hit piece on Jews. Yeah, but Stephanie, the, the, the piece itself by its own admission is is reporting something like a dozen 911 calls over five years spread across hundreds of schools. That is a public safety record, public schools could just pray for. That is a much, much, much better outcome than anything you see in any other failing New York school. These people are preaching to the Hasidim? The people who destroyed the New York City public school system? I think there's some logical fallacies going on here. Number one, everyone preaches to everyone and we can't say government's imperfect, therefore it's not allowed to do anything at all. That's just nihilism, right? Public schools are failing in a lot of places. They're successful in others. But we can't say until a given public school system is has its own house completely in order, government's not allowed to operate and not allowed to have a say in in private schools or private institutions that go on. I mean, that's that's just not logical, right? And to my knowledge, they were not saying we want to hand you curriculum in a box. This article did not say we want to hand you curriculum in a box from failing PS whatever. What it said was these students are worse than the worst of the failing inner city schools. They're at the, like of, you know, whatever, the 10 worst precincts or districts or whatever in the state, you know, seven of them are in these neighborhoods in Brooklyn or something like that. Nevertheless, this is not what interests me about this article. I have a different interest, right? I take it for granted, and, and Freddie DeBoer and other people have written intelligently about this, that both public schools and private schools in America tend to be exceedingly bad at turning out people who know any history and can do math above, say, a basic algebra level, right? And yet, most people graduate from most schools able to do the things they actually need to do in our job market, which are read and write, you know, to the degree that you can take an order, you know, if you're a clerk or whatever, or you can read the instructions to you if you're a laborer, right? Most people come out functionally literate, and most people can add and subtract and do that stuff. Most people can lead their lives, whether they're coming out of public schools or private schools. And nobody seems to mind if you're running a sort of, you know, fundamentalist Christian academy or you're educating your schools in Pennsylvania Dutch and the Amish country, and there have been lawsuits about their refusal to, to offer their kids secular education as well. It was a very famous Supreme Court case in the 70s. 
And, and, and we live with all of this stuff, including very badly failing Christian schools, Jewish schools, Muslim schools, and lots of public schools. Here is where I think we, we I think there's two cruxes here. Number one, probably if these schools are so resistant to any sort of oversight, the city shouldn't give them so much money, right? I mean, with money comes oversight. This is, you know, when Bob Jones University wanted back in the day to continue its ban on interracial dating, it had to give up all hope of federal funding, right? This is, and this, by the way, will come up, I think, next week when we'll, we'll talk about the Yeshiva University case. On this, we agree. Yep. So that's number one. And this is a community that takes, that's, you know, shrewdly and legally and capably asks for and gets a lot of money. And when that all dries up, they might want to start teaching some English. We'll see. But that is a very fair point. But number two, here to me is the really interesting question. If we, if we look inside our hearts and say, what bothered us most about some parts of this article? The quotations from the people who actually wanted to leave the community and said, but I couldn't read or write, but I couldn't even find a job, but I went to the library, couldn't figure out how to use the web, whatever. I think that what a lot of people in the liberal world feel is that you should at least be able to read and write English so that if you want to leave, you can begin to scaffold yourself out of that world. And it is certainly the case, and we know this, and the Times has the goods, has the receipts, as the kids say, and it's not surprising to any of us, that these are schools that deliberately keep kids ignorant of English. They don't think it's worth encroaching on sacred text time, but also they want to keep the kids in the community, and they feel that having really good English and a library card will help some people scaffold out of the community. And so the real question is, do you want to really be serious about your one hour a day of English language instruction? Because if you do, then you can require that. And that's not really cutting into sacred text time that much. But that, in fact, is what certain people in the community feel is most dangerous. Because then they'll understand the web, they'll understand TV, and they'll be able to go to the library and find out how to be ex-Satmar, which most of them won't want to do. Because it is a functioning community that people are happy in. But the question is, would there be a, what would it look like if there was a compromise that said, we understand that Americans don't know their history and don't know their calculus, but everyone should get one quality hour of reading, writing, and grammar every day with English language books, novels, whatever. But why? Is that, who would be into that compromise? Why? Because they're getting government funding. I mean, you can't, like the idea that getting money from the government means you should probably teach your students English or your children, the children you educate in America should be able to read and write in English. That's not an outrageous demand. That's actually like how the world works. By the way, it's a demand that sometimes comes from the right when they're going into Hispanic areas and saying, you have to teach, you know, you cannot have so-called bilingual Correct. education, which is mostly keeping them. The Correct. government, the part of this is, can the government say, we want people to have functional English? What do you think? If no money exchange hands, which by the way, is a point I agree on. I think the government definitely has the right to say, if we support, you know, this private school of any denomination, we demand the following X, Y, and Z. I'm very torn on it. What I will say is that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So, if you're going to go into Hasidic communities with the arm of government and say, we're going to inspect you on how well you're teaching English, you should be going into Amish communities. You should be going into Latino communities. You should be left, right, and center, multipartisan or nonpartisan way, saying it to everyone. And that's going to be a bitter pill for a lot of people to swallow. But I think there's a good argument for it. It's probably from a pragmatic level, not a battle worth fighting because you'll keep losing. But- do I think that Hasidic parents should want schools that give their kids an hour a day of English? I do. But actually, they think that'll be the end of their culture. They think it's the beginning of a slow creep that will end their culture. And, and I think they're correct. Look, 10 years ago, when all the Hasidic rabbis gathered in City Field uh, for this rally 
to warn against the deprivations of the internet. I laughed along most of the people I know at how ridiculous and alarmist these people seemed to me. Uh, 10 years later, I think I owe them all an apology. Pretty much every single thing they said turned out to be completely true. So I think they're not at all ridiculous for saying we want this corrosive torrent of a culture that leads to so much despair and destitution outside of our fully functioning, normal, healthy communities. And you know what? I I want the same freedom of choice for all Americans. I also want to say that, like, there does seem to be something fishy going on in some of the things they've uncovered, which is like the fact that one of the school network uses free breakfast money to, like, buy food from retailers it owns. I mean, like, I think that there are some things in here that it is good to shine a light on. And I think as Jews, we should be as supportive of that light being shined on our communities as the, as we do other people's. Except for it's such bad faith. Stephanie, these are not people who care about us. If they cared about us, they would these, write... Who's, who's these people? These are the reporters? If, if, if the paper of record actually cared about Hasidic Jews, they would report, as is their fucking purview, right, that there are attacks going on daily, daily physical violent attacks against these people. As Talbot yeah, Magazine but reported, but and that's that no a different one was story. arrested. I mean, of course, just... it's a different story. It's a story they don't care about because it makes them look good. This is something that's been they've been working on for like a year and have spoken to hundreds of people for. So I think that like right. two, those two things can be true. But Stephanie, ask why they choose to report one and not the other. If someone engages me, because in these bad are faith, education reporters. I don't care about <laughs> these what are Pulitzer Prize-winning education reporters. And this is what they report on. I mean, I, I just feel like we could this, we could play this game endlessly. Right. But I think it's very easy to say like, oh, it's two different things. You know, the paper has every right to shine a light on this one very murky and questionable thing. But it's OK that it doesn't actually cover the sort of obvious news. It's bias. It's fucking bias. But nobody's saying that's OK, that they're operating in bad faith doesn't make them wrong. Right. And we can admit that. As far as I'm concerned, it makes them irrelevant in my book because they're not actually people who love well, me or care about me or want to really help me solve a problem. But I'm like worried about these kids. Like, what about the kids that are getting beat? Like, that, it's just like that scares me. But Stephanie, their parents aren't worried about them. Their parents are making these choices. Why are we telling the parents what's best for their kids? Look, Liel, Liel, there's another issue going on here, which is that this is a community that does a very bad job of reporting on itself, that discourages journalism and self-scrutiny and often treats it as Lashon Hara, as gossip. Um, they don't have exceedingly well-functioning, self-scrutinized, you know, journalistic organs that will scrutinize the community with understanding and love. And it's very, very hard, given that you need a Yiddish speaker who has credit within the community, who has standing. I mean, it's almost impossible to commit journalism on the Satmar. Given that I'm bad at it, and I've never successfully done it, I'm going to have some gratitude for any organ that helps me understand my world better, even if I think that they're not always putting their resources in the right direction in other places. I mean, we we can we can accept bad news from from people who who wish us ill. And they publish this in Yiddish. I mean, like I think there is an effort to get this into that community. And yeah, did you notice, by the way, that they didn't say who the translator was? This was the most interesting <laughs> thing to me. This and actually, I want our audience. I want do they the ever to do that? To like when they have like a Chinese translation? Oh, absolutely. Well, I don't know about Chinese either. That'd be an interesting case. I think when they translate from into Spanish, they say translated by so and so. Anyway, what was very interesting to me is there's a Yiddish translation, which you know I read a little bit of it and got some words out of it. But I'm not the one who can tell you if it's how accurate it is. But they didn't say translated by you know Tzvi Rabinowitz because they have some <laughs> guy who knows. And I bet they put it into like Satmar or Yiddish. They put it to some. That community will understand. So identify yourself. Have, sure. Ident out yourself on unorthodox. 
And friends, go read the article. Send your traffic to the New York Times, but then to Tablet and read Liel's critique and tell us what you think. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Hi, it's Abby Pogrebin, back with another installment of The Minion, a roundtable discussion on tablet about the state of the American Jewish community. No experts, just people. This time, I talked with non-Jewish spouses of Jews, and they shared very honest reflections from their vantage point on Jewish life in the lead-up to the high holidays. Here's some of what they had to say. Uh, I don't think I ever ran across anybody Jewish on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. I didn't, there weren't any synagogues, there wasn't Jewish community centers, there wasn't anything. And then where I went to college, you just we, you just didn't see those kinds of organizations on campus. So I don't think I met anybody Jewish until I met my wife. Wow. Um, and, that, and that's when this whole new world opened up for me. I'm like, who knew? Who has a Christmas tree in your house today as a matter of course? Our Christmas tree story spanned about 12 years after we got married. We kind of built up to it. And I think the first time we got, we had a tree was 12 or 13 years after we got married, after we had two kids. And the first one that we got was like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree for sure that my husband had picked out. And the tree has grown with his comfort. And so now we have a full-size Christmas tree. But we did uncouple the Christmas tree and a lot of the Christmas traditions that I grew up with from like consumerism. So we have a Christmas tree, but we hand make all of our ornaments together. And so they all have a story within our family. And we, when it comes time for Christmas, we make homemade presents for each other. And that's it. The tree itself is part of that kind of scaled down, but homespun holiday kind of scene. The Christmas tree is like one of those, it's a strange tradition in my family because we are Hindu, but growing up in the U.S. when everyone had off during the Christmas and New Year's holidays, we kind of had nothing else to celebrate. So we always used to have a Christmas tree. And um, sort of ironically, my husband uh, always had a Christmas tree too, in just sort of like a an ironic sense. So um, we continue the tradition in a way that is meant to be celebratory and festive, um, but not religious by any means, because neither of us is um, Christian or of any religion that celebrates Christmas. What would you want others to know about non-Jewish spouses? Remember that we chose. We chose the chosen people. <laughs> we didn't have to. And maybe we're more adaptable than we are convertible, but we made a choice. Yeah, I think uh, give us the benefit of the doubt also that <laughs> one of the biggest differences is I don't order enough food for parties. <laughs> so make sure the non-Jewish spouse orders enough food. <laughs> I would just say you may have to teach us how to safely slice a bagel. Check out the latest Minion at tabletmag.com slash the Minion.
are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Our Gentile of the Week is Michael Lewis, whom we got to know because he is one of the guests on our new podcast, Gatecrashers. He begins the Princeton episode with some memories of the eating clubs at Princeton. But he's also a journalist and an author. You might be familiar with his mega-selling books, The Big Short, Moneyball, or The Blind Side, all of them made into pretty sweet movies. He also has a great podcast called Against the Rules. Please listen to our conversation with Michael Lewis, which touches on Jews and New Orleans and, well, what could be better than that? Michael Lewis, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. It's an honor. This is really, really exciting for us. You know, you've written some of the best and most famous books of the last 50 years. You brought us Moneyball, The Blind Side, Liar's Poker, The Big Short. Your newest book, The Premonition, about the pandemic, is now out in paperback. And you just wrapped the third season of your amazing podcast, Against the Rules. But I want to talk about something completely different, another more obscure piece of yours that I think it's time for the world to revisit. It's an essay you wrote 30 years ago. It ran in the New Republic. It's called Toy Goy. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to read you a really important sentence from this from this piece. I don't remember. I know, I know the gist of it. <laughs> I remember none of it. And you have to pay to get to it now, I think. So go ahead. We've paid. We've paid it all. We're actually the only people who are paying to get the New Republic <laughs> online right now. We are their subscriber. So, okay. In this piece, you write, some of my earliest memories are of playing dreidels, singing Jewish folk songs, and defending myself against anti-Semitism. Michael Lewis, please explain this sentence to us. Sure. Uh, so I grew up in New Orleans, and I went to a school called the Isidore Newman School. And Isidore Newman School was founded in 1903 as a manual training center for Jewish orphans. So in the early 50s, it morphed into the best private school, like certainly in Louisiana. And a certain number of goys sent their kids there just to get the education. But my class was maybe 70% Jewish. Almost all the girls were Jewish. That declined to maybe half Jewish by the time I was in high school. But culturally, nothing in New Orleans is dogmatic. Nobody has the energy to be orthodox about anything. It's so hot and humid. It's too hot, yes. Everybody's corrupted and living in a swamp. But there was a residue of Jewish culture. And we celebrated Jewish holidays. We played with dreidels. Oh, dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. I made it out of play. And when it's dry and ready, oh, dreidel, I shall play. We used to chant that and spin this little top. And where it got really weird was when I got to high school. Because in high school, you were out, out playing on sports teams and going out across the city and sometimes across the state. And everybody in Louisiana knows Newman is this Jewish school. 
And so I get off the bus with my, in my baseball uniform and people shout kike at me. I'm serious. And people, they call us Jewman. And I thought, this is bizarre. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm so much less Jewish than you, I think. And you're, you're, you know, people are coming after me. You know, in the end, of course, you end up like in the trenches with your Jewish brothers. You can't believe that people do this sort of thing. You've actually been called kike more than I have. If you've been called it once, that's more than I've been called it. More than most people. A dozen times. And it was kids. It was kids on the on ball fields or basketball courts. I know your corpus pretty well, and I can't think that you've ever talked about being churched yourself. Were you churched at all? That same little column that you pulled out of the New Republic, I used to write pretty regularly, and I wrote one about on being raised an atheist, which is, it's putting it too strongly. My parents were so indifferent, they couldn't bother to put a name on it. But my father thought it was all hocus pocus. So this true story, when I was in like the first or second grade, my mother got it in her head that I was missing out on like a cultural experience that all the kids were having. And she took me to a church to learn about their Sunday school. And it was not on a Sunday, but there was a little old lady who took me around the church and showed me we were going to read the Bible. And I saw the, you know, the bloody cross with Jesus. And I, I just got so freaked out. I said to the little lady, so what's that over there? And she kind of turned and I sprinted out the front door of the church and it was a raised church. I went through the bushes and hid under the church until my mother pulled up in a car and I ran out and jumped in the car. And my father said, you know, wise boy, if he feels that way about it, don't take him back. So I never had any kind of religious really identity. A closest thing to it was like a cultural identity with the Jews I went to school with. So when you get taunted, you know, when you sort of are the victim of anti-Semitic taunts and you're not Jewish yourself, do you ever want to be like, hey guys, you got this wrong. I'm not one of them. Or are you sort of like one of them because they are your classmates? I mean, where do you sort of fall on that? Well, one, it was comic. I mean, you're not even getting your prejudice right. But I was totally, you know, they were my teammates. Uh, so I was like, I'm on, I'm with them, you know, let's fight. You know, let's, if you want to have a religious war, I'm on the side of the Jews. But it never got that far. It was always just kind of casual and you know what? It happened, as I say, like maybe a dozen times over the course of my life at the Newman School. It's just always so weird. It was like they had been taught. You know, th these kids hadn't figured this out by themselves. It was like their parents had said, you know, say this to them. I can remember being taught taunts that I was supposed to say to Latino kids when we played soccer against them. Never would occur to, in Spanish, never would occur to me in a million years to do it on my own. Someone told me to do it. And it felt like that. It's like, oh, they were told that this is a, you know, that's a weird Jewish school. You want to get under their skin, say things about Jews. I have a New Orleans question. So because you're talking about Newman School, which had this kind of currency in New Orleans and Louisiana at large, it is a religiously weird place. You know, you read your Anne Rice and you get your sort of Catholic, Gothic sense. It also allegedly has this accent, this sort of indigenous accent that is close to New York, Brooklynese. I don't know if it still exists. Is New Orleans still as unique a place as it used to be? Is it your sense that there's still a kind of bizarre Gothic weirdness to New Orleans or has it just become, you know, big box America like everything else? It's certainly not become big box America. And it is true that even now there's a residue of an accent that resembles a Brooklyn accent. And there's a reason for it. I mean, I think we called it Yat. They were called the Yats because it was where Yats is what they call it. But that accent, it was the same wave of Irish immigration that created the accents in Brooklyn. They, you know, the ships came to New York and they came to New Orleans. So there was a real connection between the two places. I mean, I don't sound like I'm from the South, right? Not very much. Uh, so there, there's a lot of variety in New Orleans. I would say that New Orleans, since Katrina, a lot of people washed out and a lot of people washed in. That when I was growing up, nobody left and nobody came. It was a stagnant community. Even now, though, when, you, when I go back, and I go back a lot, 
you know, it just feels different. It feels different on the streets. The biggest thing you notice, right, when you get there is people notice you. If you get used to walking by people on the streets and not making eye contact or saying hello, you're jolted out of that when you're there. Everybody insists on having some connection. And it's not just, oh, hi. It's, oh, let's stop and I'm going to tell you a story. Something funny just happened. Uh, There's a lot of that. And of course, it's still a very peculiar place. I don't think there's any other city it's quite like. I want to ask you about a different peculiar place, Israel, because your 2016 book, The Undoing Project, was about cognitive psychologist Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And I imagine that required you spending a fair amount of time there, right? Because both of them were, were Israeli. Yes. That was the strangest book I ever wrote from the creator's experience, because normally I find the subject and at most wire to wire, it takes me two years. It took me eight years to actually figure out how to do it or even if I should do it. And over the course of those eight years, I made five trips and loved it. I mean, just love those trips. Will you tell us about the book and who Kahneman and Tversky were? Sure. Two Israeli psychologists, important for a whole bunch of reasons. But the simple story is jointly they they created this project to explore the way people's minds make systematic errors when they're making sense of the world. And they showed how even when you give a person a problem to which is a statistically correct answer, people make systematically wrong judgments about that problem. And they were getting at systematic irrationality, not just random irrationality, but the way we all make the same kind of mistake. And the work was important in part because it undermined classical economics, which is kind of premised on people being basically rational and the errors that people make being kind of random. What I loved about the story and what attracted me was not just the research. It was that it was a love story. They felt about each other more strongly than they felt about any person in their lives including their wives. It was purely platonic, but they just, they had a connection that was just breathtakingly powerful. But what was so interesting to me was the outside world had so much trouble accepting that their work was genuinely a byproduct of the collaboration and not mainly due to one or the other. In particular, everybody thought Amos Tversky was a genius. There was this famous psychologist at Michigan named Richard Nisbet created what he said was the briefest intelligence test ever created. It was the Tversky test. The Tversky test was the longer it takes you after you meet Amos Tversky to figure out Amos Tversky is smarter than you, the stupider you are. I mean, I may tell you, everybody who ever met this guy said, I've never met a, a smarter person. And so everybody wanted to attribute to Amos the joint work. And Amos got a MacArthur Genius Award without Danny. There was talk about Amos getting the Nobel Prize for the work without Danny. People kind of thought, oh, Danny's like not totally necessary here. And that corroded the relationship. And in the end, it broke it up. It was as if the world just couldn't accept the idea of collaboration. You know, the other fascinating thing about these two guys and their work is that they were these sort of like scrappy outsiders in a way, and they were really pushing on what everyone assumed to be true. And I I feel like there was something about not just the two of them, the collaboration, but this environment they come from, right? They're in sort of like the soup of like newly formed state of Israel post-Holocaust years where like this was such a fertile ground, it seemed like, for psychological inquiry. Is it my overstating it to sort of place them in that context? No, I think where they come from is extremely important. I mean, all their work is against the backdrop of war. They are themselves both in and out of the military. So no, I think it's really important. And I think it's important on another level I think if you want to know what kind of what the the secret sauce was in their collaboration, I think it was in Amos. I think it was Danny's 
it was super, he had a superpower of just doubting everything. So what Amos just presumed to be true, Danny would find ways to undermine and creating like the opening to think about things completely differently. And the earth beneath Danny's feet, this was a, a psychological property in Danny. The earth beneath Danny's feet was never stable. He was always on quicksand. And you don't want to be too simplistic about it, but this is a, a man who, as a little boy, was being chased across France by Nazis, watches his father die because he can't get medical treatment. You know, every day, night goes to bed praying that he be allowed to live another day. I mean, there's a reason he is the way he is. And the uncertainty of being Jewish, where he was Jewish, I think is a, is a part of it. I have two questions. First of all, how'd you get wired to the story? I've, you wrote about this maybe in the book, but I forget. How'd you get turned on to their story? I had written a book before called Moneyball. And Moneyball was about the way a baseball team that had no money competed with baseball teams that did have money. And the answer to that question was they exploited the systematic irrationality that other teams exhibited when valuing baseball players. People overvalued players that were good-looking and undervalued players that were ugly. Uh, they overvalued players that had really obvious virtues like strength and speed and undervalued players that had really subtle virtues but that were extremely important on a baseball field. And they resorted, instead of intuitive judgment, they resorted to statistical analysis. And what I didn't know when I wrote that book was that the ideas at the bottom of what the Oakland A's were doing when they were running circles around people with this new way of running a baseball team had come from Kahneman and Tversky. I learned that in a review of Moneyball written by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein in The New Republic, where they said, really interesting book, but the author doesn't seem to know what he's done. He's written a case study in the work of Kahneman and Tversky. Hmm. And I didn't know who Kahneman and Tversky was. A week later, I was out having a drink with a friend who's a psychologist at Cal, and I told him about this review, and he said, well, you ought to kind of dig into this because Kahneman lives up the hill from you. My friend said I was Amos's teaching assistant at Stanford and I could open up that world to you. And that was the beginning of a couple of years of conversation before I actually kind of dove into it. But that's where I first got interested in it. I tell you, though, what was so unsettling about writing about them is that in their presence, I felt I was outmatched, that I was never going to get my mind around their minds. And I'd never felt that way about a subject. I'd always felt kind of like the B student writing about C students. I write about Wall Street guys or sports people, or I could understand their minds. And they weren't doing anything that was so spectacular, I couldn't get my mind around it. These two dudes, Amos and Danny, I knew that I was the B student writing about A students. And the B student writing about A students is not going to get everything that the A student has to say. And so for the longest time, I thought, even though I'm gathering all this material and flying back and forth to Israel, I'm not really qualified to write this book. And there's probably some truth to that still, but it did get to the point where it was absurd. I'd spent five years reporting it and I wasn't going to write it and no one else was going to write it. So I ended up writing because I realized no one else was going to write it. You now are, like so many of us, a podcaster as well as a writer. And I like your podcast. I like Against the Rules a lot. Do you like it? as much as you like writing? Do you prefer it? Does it exercise a different muscle? What's the writer's relationship to the podcaster in you? When I do the podcast, I'm actually performing a script that's been written and edited and performed before on a table reads. And so it's, it's a form of writing. And it does work different muscles because you're writing for the ear, not the eye. And the ear is, it's a different mechanism. It responds much more powerfully to emotion, to emotion in people's voices because you can hear it. 
to emotional stories. It responds less well to complicated arguments. So, you know, sometimes I violated this rule, but I tend with the podcast to look for stories that have some sort of emotional resonance. So it's pulled me in that direction. And it's also, you know, it's really valuable to, if all you do is write and you're not ever reading it aloud, you start to lose the sound of it. And it's worked that muscle that like, I'm, I think it's made me more attuned to the sound of the prose when I write the books. Can you tell us a podcast you love and a writer you love? The podcast that I will most reliably listen to is Malcolm Gladwell's. So I think it's terrific. I have kind of gotten in, it's weird, I don't know why, but I've gotten into the smartless conversations. And oh, they're it's, great. It's candy. I feel at the end of it that I need to go eat a salad. But, uh, <laughs> but they do what they do very well. I think, you know, there really isn't any podcast that has a narrative nonfiction, true storytelling, that has ever risen to the level of This American Life. You know, it's not classified as a podcast, it's, but Ira Glass's work is the best work in this field, I think. And if we're half as good as Ira in Against the Rules, we're doing well. Um, a writer I like, uh, Amor Tolls, he's my new crush. Uh, gentleman in Moscow, Lincoln Highway. And it's, he's a curious story. I've gotten to know him a bit. And he's as delightful in person as he is in print. But when I first started reading, I thought, where did this guy come from? And it turns out that he had spent I don't know, 20 years in a Wall Street career before publishing anything. And he's like in his early 50s before he publishes his first novel, which is a weird thing. It's happened before. No one has ever been so good at it as him. I think he's Steinbeck. I think he's that good. I think he's like a great American novelist. Well, as our Gentile of the Week, I don't know if we told you this in advance, but you are entitled to like one question of us, of our people. I know you've sort of spent a lot of time in your career, whether it was at Newman, Wall Street, journalism, media. The media conspiracy. <laughs> Hollywood. Um, but is there, is there anything you've always sort of wanted to know but never knew who to ask? So I've spent my life in Jewish institutions, right? Not only the Isidore Newman School, but my first job out of college was at the Wildenstein Art Gallery. Uh, I worked at Solomon Brothers. I worked at the New Republic, on and on and on. And that was the point of that piece I wrote, the Toy Goy piece. And in there, I suggest, I don't know if I say it, but I never got an answer to this question. I'd always felt like, when I was a goy in a Jewish institution, that I was being held to a different and lower standard than everybody else. That so little was expected of me by the Jews that if I did anything, that if I said anything halfway clever, it was thought to be, well, much cleverer than it actually was. That if I was slightly charming, I was much more charming than I actually was. That if you got a group <laughs> of Jewish people and someone who's not Jewish walking, you kind of handicapped them. Is that true? That's my question. Is it true that when the toy goy wanders in, that you actually just, you automatically assume he's going to be kind of inferior. And if he, if he can even halfway hold his own, you're awed. It's what we call the soft bigotry of lobe expectations. <laughs> I've never heard this before. No? I don't know. Mark, have you heard this? Well, I mean, how would I? The Gentiles would talk about it after their squash match out of earshot of us. I don't know. I'm really intrigued by that. Here's what I think, Michael. There are so few Jewy institutions other than a synagogue anymore because Jews have gotten, as Nicholas Lemon wrote in a great New Republic piece of the same vintage, we've gotten dumber. You know, our children are just lacrosse playing, you know, American morons like your children now <laughs> as we've, you know, achieved success. I mean, the numbers of Jews at Yale and Princeton are way below where they were in your day and mine. They're seven or 8% now, not 15 or 20%. 
I think the financial industries are less Jewish. So I don't know. I don't think there are many Jewish spaces anymore. And the Jews who are there don't have that clubbiness. They're just, you know, everyone's just trying to make partner ahead of everyone else because it's America. But I think that you came from an era a little, you know, being a little bit older than I am, where I think that might have been true. They might have thought that you had a Goyesha cop, a Gentile head, which was a dumb head. That you were a dumb cop. Yeah, I think it's plausible. But you know what? When we run your interview, we're going to get a lot of mail on this. And it's going to be really interesting. We're going to get mail from people who are 50 and 60 years old saying, oh, yeah, no, he's on to something. If you get an answer, let me know. Because I've al- I have always sensed it. That much less was expected of me. How nice that must have been. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was great. <laughs> Yeah. Well, our expectations for this were really, really low um, for you, just like that. So, so you really surpassed the, the low bar we set for you. Michael Lewis, this has been a privilege. I honestly think when we were conceiving of like our Gentile of the Week way back five years ago when we started this podcast, I think you would be like the platonic ideal of what we call the GOTW. So this is just like a real thrill for us to have you on. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm sorry it took you so long to find me. Michael Lewis, thank you so much. It's been a real treat. Thank you so much. Well, now now we're never going to lose you. It's it's You're on now. <laughs> and you're shutting the lights off for us on Saturdays, so we appreciate that as well. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, by the way, Stephanie, when, mm-hmm. do you, should, you need to know this. When someone emails you and says, we're gonna be, I'm sorry, I'm going to be 10 minutes late to your podcast, you get an automatic reply saying you're away for Passover. <laughs> it says I'm away for Passover? <laughs> yes. I, yes, it still says it. And I thought, this is how it's always been with the Jews I'm around. They're always away for Passover. That's amazing because I'm away and said an away message, but it did not say Passover. But I guess that's just what goes on when I when I do go away. I will send it to you. It says it says April 20th. I'm away. It has the dates and everything. It's, it's, it's an old message. But you, you have perfected the Passover excuse that I've been subjected to for my entire life. And it turns out it works year round. That's literally in that article. That article was published around yeah. Passover because you were the only one in the office when everyone was away for Passover. That's right. amazing. I'm it's actually not like, going to change that. It, but you said that, you keep that, that to message. a boy is a little like a girl saying, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I'm on my period. It, just, it shuts down the conversation. No, okay, okay you you can't. Okay. It's Passover. In fact, you just got the answer to your question, which is it turns out we think that Gentiles are so dumb that they'll believe it's Passover any time of year. That's exactly right. That's exactly, that's right. That's exactly right. Oh my God. I literally see it. It says tablet is closed in observance of Passover. It's, we're still closed. We're still closed, Michael. Yeah. And we'll be closed through Christmas. Well, we guys are open all the time. So all the time. If you, if you need us again, give us a call. Just don't expect too much. That's amazing, Michael Lewis. Thank you so much. It's been a real treat. Thank you so much. Are you or someone you know affected by anti-Semitism? Well, then you want to tune in to this next interview with Dana Bash, CNN's chief political correspondent who takes a break from her usual fare to go report uh, on the world's most ancient hate. She is the co-anchor of CNN's State of the Union, and she joins us to talk about the CNN special she recently reported, Rising Hate, Anti-Semitism in America. Here's Dana Bash. Danabash, welcome to Unorthodox. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
This is a thrill to be seeing you on a Zoom screen and not on the big screen is, <laughs> is pretty exciting. Could you tell us about this new special report, Rising Hate, Anti-Semitism in America, and what sparked you to take on this subject? Well, I can't take credit for the genesis of it. It was actually the senior producer on the project. Her name is Melissa Dunst-Lipman. And she, unbeknownst to me, went to her bosses and had been talking to them about the fact that we are seeing a rise in anti-Semitism and it probably is time for CNN to tackle it in a robust way. And unfortunately, the attacks on Jews became a problem in a way that made it more and more newsworthy. My boss came to me and said, uh, would you like to do this? And before that question even got out of his mouth, I said, yes. <laughs> it's so ingrained in who I am because I grew up always knowing that my grandparents barely made it out alive because of the Nazis. They escaped Nazi Europe. I mean, look, for all Jews, anti-Semitism is who we are for millennia, right? I mean, it's like in our DNA, but more recently for me in a very profound way. So there's a line in the series, the world's oldest hatred goes online. Can we get to both parts of that sentence, the idea of the world's oldest hatred and the idea of anti-Semitism as a conspiracy, which is something you really definitely go into. And then also this idea of this very, very, very old thing has a lot of new expressions, primarily on the internet. Well, I've certainly heard that before, the oldest hate, the oldest hatred, but it was Deborah Lipstadt that sort of said it, and as she always does, in a very clear, pointed way to me when we were talking. And I thought, well, yeah, well, this this is it. This kind of sums up the whole hour. If you go back to the pogroms and even before that, the, the Spanish Inquisition back even before that, the hate was there. The conspiracies were there. They're very similar to what we're seeing now. Jews run the world. Jews run the money. Jews bring disease. And in 2022, all of that is still happening. And when it happens online, it spreads like wildfire. I think the most illustrative soundbite in the hour was Damian Patton, who was a skinhead, self-described skinhead, like a white nationalist in the 80s because he was a homeless kid and he got caught up in it and he got recruited. And we went to the streets of Los Angeles where he got recruited. And he said, this is the street corner. But now online, you can be on a thousand street corners at the same time. And to me, that just put it all in context and perspective. And you actually like get into the command center that is monitoring all of this. What was that like to be there? And what, what, what do they do? They are there 24-7. We went to the Secure Community Network. There are others. They helped to train the people in the synagogue in Colleyville, Congregation Beth Israel. And the rabbi there, uh, Rabbi Charlie and Jeff Cohen, who was one of the hostages and one of the people I talked to, they 100% credit the training that they got, the on-the-ground, real-life training that they got from the Secure Community Network with helping them survive. Rabbi Charlie took a chair, which I actually tried to pick up. It's really heavy. And threw it at the gunman and everybody ran for the exits. And they had made their way towards the exit throughout the 11 hours that they were held hostage, knowing that that was what they should be doing. There's some parts of the special that are really, it's its really dark and depressing, but there is sort of a sense of hopefulness seeing sort of the direct actions people are taking to fight this. What, what sort of emotional note do you end on having worked on this and having this out in the world now? There are two parts of this that are hopeful. One is, just like you said, is taking control. 
taking control when it comes to just the physical part, physical safety. But the other is taking control in terms of education and putting forward a Jewish identity that is authentic to combat the Jewish identity that is conspiratorial and the basis of the oldest hatred. And that's what I learned from Jeff Cohen, who I mentioned, who was a hostage. He's not particularly observant, but he said he wears his kippah out in public a lot more than he did before because he almost died at the hands of an anti-Semite. If you think about Jews being persecuted for so many generations, understandably, the reaction by many was, shh, keep quiet. Don't let them see. Don't rock the boat. Just let's do our thing. Don't cause trouble. Let's just keep on keeping on. And with Jeff Cohen, who was very much a victim of anti-Semitism, and others like him say is, no, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm not going to keep quiet. I'm going to wear my kippah. And I'm telling people that when your crazy uncle sits at the Thanksgiving table and says racist and anti-Semitic things, don't just make excuses for him. You got to stand up and say, no, uncle, whatever, you're wrong. And this is not okay. And it was such a lesson for me. Another lesson that you showcase is this idea of being loud and proud. And I was surprised to read in your essay accompanying the special that that's sort of something that's been going on in your own family. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. My son, who's now 11, was 10. It was Hanukkah. And I said, what do you want for Hanukkah? And he said, "Um, what do you think about me getting a Star of David to wear around my neck? And I pretty much blew him off. I was like, okay, you know, put it way somewhere in the recesses of my mind. And I did that mostly because I didn't think he was that serious, but also because I wasn't sure I liked the idea of him wearing a Jewish star because I'm an adult in the adult world and see the violence that's happening and understand anti-Semitism. And luckily at age 10, he was innocent enough to not understand that. And I felt, well, I'm protecting him. I'm protecting him by not saying yes. Well, halfway through Hanukkah, He sort of sheepishly said, mom, remember I mentioned the Jewish star? Like, do you think that I could get one? And I said, wait, wait, you you were really serious about that? Why do you want to wear one? And he said, well, I'm really proud of being Jewish. And there are a lot of kids at my school who are Christian who wear crosses and there's no issue with them wearing a cross. So why should there be an issue with me wearing a Star of David? And I said, you're right, there isn't. So we went online and we picked one out and it came in the mail and he wears it. He hasn't taken it off since. And he hasn't had an issue. When I decided to do this essay, I sort of interviewed him. I have air quotes here. And I said, first of all, have you had any issues? He said, no, no issues at all. I said, and second of all, what? can you remind me why you want to do it and why you like wearing it every day? He said, mom, it's my identity. That's amazing. And I think that's something that we're seeing also, which is that in response to all of the anti-Semitism that we're seeing, you know, everywhere, it seems, in a way that's very frightening to people who are younger and who are not familiar with a world where that was the norm. Um, And almost like the post-Pittsburgh world of just general uncertainty and and fear around being Jewish, I also have been really moved by the overwhelming response of people saying, no, no, we're not going to back down or, or hide ourselves. We actually are going to be more in your face about our Judaism and our Jewishness. And and that's been something that's been really moving for me as a journalist to see as well. Absolutely. And I have to tell you, Stephanie, the emails that I've gotten from people I know, from people I don't know, messages on social media have been remarkable. 
I have a, a high in my drawer that I got from my bar mitzvah 40 years ago. I never wear it. I'm taking it out. I'm wearing it. I sometimes wear my Star of David inside, but I'm going to take it outside now. People who said that they showed the essay to their teenage or even younger children, and they said, I want one too. And I honestly have the chills thinking about reading those messages. And it's not something I expected, but it is so wonderful. Well, it's so interesting because, you know, we see you on CNN, we see you on State of the Union, but then to sort of see this personal piece that is sort of like the human side to all of this, right? Which is just Mm -hmm. like even someone like you could struggle with this thing that so many people are struggling with. So I, I appreciate that you put that out there as sort of a companion to the series. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. And and I struggle with even writing it, <laughs> so, but I'm glad I did. I'm really glad I did, especially given the reaction. And I'd say I'm on vacation right now. And my mom, who's a Jewish educator, who's never been shy about her Judaism and has a beautiful Star of David, but didn't wear it very much. She got off the plane and she's wearing it like <laughs> it's like blinging in the in the sunshine. I'm like, OK, got it. <laughs> No, I love that. I feel like we should all take the lesson of of your son, right? And take that pride in our Jewishness. A 10-year-old Jewish influencer who definitely did not plan to be that way. (laughs) (laughs) Influencing grandmas and everyone else around him. Yeah, Bubby's everywhere. Bubby's everywhere. (laughs) Danabash, it is such a treat to talk with you. The CNN special report is Rising Hate, Anti-Semitism in America, and our listeners should definitely check it out. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having me. It was really a pleasure. Mazel tovs. Stephanie Butnick, do you have a mazel tov? I have a mazel tov to the Montana Jewish Project. They succeeded in buying back Montana's first synagogue, and I really was excited about that story, and I would love for us to go there. I'm putting this out into the universe. Montana Jewish Project, bring us to Montana's first synagogue for a live show. We'd love to celebrate with you. Leo Leibowitz, do you have a mazel tov? I have the biggest mazel tov ever, mazel tov to our beloved dear friends, Nellie Bowles and Barry Weiss, who last week gave birth to a beautiful baby girl who we haven't met yet, but we already love so much. Mazel tov to the newest Jewish warrior princess. The, 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 the NJWP, the newest Jewish warrior princess. Speaking of newest Jewish warrior princesses, I have a mazel tov to our very own Quinn Waller on the occasion of her coming home to Judaism, becoming uh, a Jew a couple weeks ago at Congregation Rodef Sholem in New York City. It was an extraordinary honor to be there and to meet her dad and her friends and her roomies and then and then celebrate at the Holy Temple, the, the, the inner sanctum of Barney Greengrass with their latkes and all uh, Quinn Waller, mazel tov. Quinn Waller, for you, the latkes at Barney Greengrass are free. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, along with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Sarfra, Benito, Daron Ruskay, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twinstagram book and you can donate to our fundraiser. Please do. Please go give something at tabletm.ag slash mysterybox. You can get unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. You can send us snail mail at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, one triple zero. 
one, please go subscribe to Gatecrashers, our newest podcast, The Hidden History of Jews in the Ivy League, Gatecrashers, on Apple Podcasts and all the fine podcast platforms. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Mona Alfie at Congregation B'nai Israel in Sacramento, California. And we come to you from the slightly chillier Tablet Studios where we're getting our tweed ready for fall. Shalom, friends. Thank you.